0: Hello, this is Ankur Kalra and I am a member of the staff at the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm an interventional cardiologist with a focus on coronary and structural heart interventions. I'm also an assistant professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine of Case Western Reserve University, also in Cleveland, Ohio. As editor in chief of US Cardiology Review. It is my absolute honor and privilege to broadcast Radcliffe Cardiology's first ever podcast series. In 2019, how we imbibe and learn new information has changed. In a profession where information and knowledge are in a constant quote-unquote flow state, precise knowledge can make a difference in someone's life. I've learned from my father that if the mind does not know, the eyes do not see. As our lives keep getting busier and entangled, finding the time and the space to dedicate to reading evolving literature are hard to find. I personally have utilized commuting time and time exercising to cohabitate with learning time. And in the age of information overload, where knowledge is dispensed in different forms of media, it can be daunting to devote 60-odd minutes a day in gathering, reading, and digesting relevant information for professional development and keeping oneself up to date one of my mentors and now a colleague and dear friend, Duane Pinto, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, told me as he handed over the Interventional Cardiology graduation certificate, just don't be a technician, be a content expert. I thought through this all as I was putting these series together. We at Radcliffe Cardiology aspire these series to be just the right dose of new knowledge and information you need per podcast. U.S. Cardiology Review publishes contemporary reviews on evolving and topical areas in cardiovascular medicine, encompassing all subspecialties within the field, general cardiology, interventional cardiology, electrophysiology, and advanced heart failure and cardiac transplantation. We've also introduced a new section on preventive cardiology and cardiometabolic disorders after I assumed the role of the editor-in-chief of the journal, this past year. The podcast series will be the audio format extension of these seminal reviews. Our goal is to deliver the information you need to know at the patient's bedside in a digestible conversational audio format. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm thrilled to unveil Radcliffe Group's first podcast series, Parallax. The first podcast discusses the topic of conduction abnormalities after transcatheter aortic valve replacement. This excellent review, which is out now in the spring 2019 issue of the journal, has been authored by physicians from the Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. For our first podcast feature, I had the privilege to speak with the senior author of this review article, Dr. Jack Kleiger, Director of the Valve and Structural Heart Center at Lenox Hill Heart and Lung in New York take a listen to our conversation. Uh,
1: I have with me uh, Dr. Chad Kligar. Dr. Kleiger is uh, Director of Structural Heart Disease Interventions at uh, Lenox uh, Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. Um, And uh, he's joining us here for the first podcast um, for uh, U.S. Cardiology Review. Welcome, Chad. It's great to have you here.
2: Thank you, encore. Thank you for having me. I think this is a a unique way to discuss uh, some of the very important topics uh, that we're we're showing off in in, uh, the journal that you're you're leading, and I think it's uh, a good uh, conversational piece to to have. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: Great. Uh, I'm glad um, that you joined us uh, here for the podcast. Um, So thank you uh, again for contributing to uh, U.S. Cardiology Review and for a very important topic uh, that you've written uh, on, which is conduction abnormalities after transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Um, And as we were talking offline, uh, transcatheter aortic valve replacement has grown exponentially uh, over the past five years. Uh, And I think its applicability to uh, more patients uh, continues to grow. Um, So I think this article uh, is very relevant uh, for the practicing clinician, uh, the practicing cardiologist, as well as uh, interventionalists and electrophysiologists who are taking care of these patients. Uh, I want to start off um, by asking you about um, conduction abnormalities that you commonly encounter following uh, transcatheter aortic valve replacement. So um, what are the uh, some of the most common conduction abnormalities you see um, and, you know, there's a, a second part of the question is um, before you are subjecting a patient to this procedure, um, are there any baseline uh, electrocardiographic variables that you key into uh, that would prepare you upfront uh, for um, a conduction abnormality that would occur following transcatheter replacement?
2: Sure. So, so I think uh, just to start off, I think this is, as we evolve in the, in the TAVR space, I mean, there've been a lot of issues. Uh, that we've dealt with with implantation of valves through the years, and the generation of devices has gotten better and better. Um, I think, you know, this next era of TAVR, we're really going to hone in and try to uh, perfect how we how we manage patients perioperative. And I think, you know, one huge aspect of, of this is uh, intra-procedural, uh, peri-procedural management, even post-procedural management, um, of conduction issues uh, around TAVR implantation. So, I think this is a very important topic. Uh, I think little guidance that we've had in the past, and uh, I think moving forward, we're going to see a lot, even a lot more data and uh, treatment algorithms to better help understand uh, what the mechanism is, uh, what happens to these patients with conduction abnormality, and how we best treat them in a, in a very algorithmic fashion. Uh, so so the, the question that you asked, are are there features of uh, the electrical system that uh, we, we look at at baseline uh, that sort of will make us uh, a little bit more concerned about uh, TAVR and risk of conduction issues uh, after? Uh, and there are. So a baseline right bundle branch block is probably uh, the highest uh, largest concern for, for patients entering into the TAVR space uh, for risk of uh, developing high-degree AV block, complete heart block, uh, Pariet procedures. So these are the patients that we're, we're clearly uh, most concerned about, um, and well, many of many of our patients will see uh, the electrophysiologist prior to implantation to make sure they don't have any indications for pacemaker uh, prior to, to, to prior to TAVR. Uh, other other less uh, uh, impactful uh, EKHD concerns are your 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 left bundle branch blocks, your hemi blocks. Uh, uh, prolonged or long first-degree AV blocks at baseline, uh, baseline AFib or baseline bradycardia or some of the other uh, electrical EKG uh, risk factors that may increase your risk. Uh, and it varies between studies, the things that, that we look at when uh, we see these patients preoperatively. Um. Uh,
1: that's, um, that's insightful. Uh, thanks for uh, sharing that with us, Chad. Um, what are some of the mechanisms uh, for developing Um, you know, high-grade AV block or, um, you know, complete AV block, uh, either intra-procedure or immediately following uh, a procedure like transcatheter aortic valve replacement. And I know that, um, you know, surgeons, um, uh, on the other hand, have dealt with this uh, for a while. Um, You know, obviously, surgical aortic valve replacement has been around for decades. Um, So if you can dive a little bit into... um, you know, some of the mechanisms and some of the differences you would see between the two uh, procedures when you compare transcatheter versus surgical aortic valve replacement, you know, some of the uh, pacemaker, or you shouldn't say the pacemaker, but some of the conduction abnormality rates uh, and and their difference between the two procedures.
2: So so f- for surgery, and surgeons have seen uh, post-operative left bundle and high degree AB block uh, for many years. Uh, for the surgeons, they do surgical dissection of the valve, decalcification uh, of, of the native valve before valve implantation. Uh, and just from local trauma, swelling uh, at the site, uh, you can see changes in that conduction system right where that right and non-coronary cusp is uh, that can lend itself to uh, trauma to that uh, His-Purkinje, AV nodal uh, tissue area. So. And you know even mechanical compression when they implant these valves. Now typically their their mode of implantation is is really not deep into the LVOT. It's either annular or superannular, so the compression is less of an issue, but still a possibility when uh, they may try to oversize the valve to get better EOA's uh, and larger valve sizes uh, for their patient. So the surgeons have seen uh, uh, conduction abnormalities for for a long time and have seen a, a need for pacemaker, but their pacemaker rates. Uh, vary, uh, bundle branch uh, block rates vary um, in the surgical population, but you see it really in the single-digit levels. For TAVR, uh, sort of that changes a little bit because we don't do resection of that uh, native leaflet. We don't do decalcification of the aortic root. Uh, So, you know, things that we we think about uh, like uh, calcification um, uh, at the the areas of that right non-coronary cusp, Implanting uh, an intra annular, uh, even a little slightly deeper into the LVT valve, uh, whether it's a balloon expandable or self expandable valve, can uh, hit that AV node right where that uh, uh, triangle of cotch is uh, and put a little pressure where the membrane septum is and where the exit exit of the left bundle uh, through that um, base of the membrane septum to really give you a a risk for a left bundle branch block or, or high degree AV block. Now, you know, I think what's interesting is this is the mechanism. What we see for for our uh, transcatheter heart valves, the the rates of left bundle branch block, and it, it varies between the type of prosthesis, uh, but could be as high as uh, thirty five to sixty five percent for a left bundle, uh, and with pacemakers, rates as we know in the anywhere from the ten to twenty five percent range, also varying between transcatheter prosthesis. Uh, many of these left bundle branch blocks uh, resolve uh, within the first uh, 48 to 72 hours. Uh, many, about half of them do, uh, but we're still left with either uh, subsequent left bundle branch block, conduct- conduction issues, or some advancement uh, into high-degree area block that require permanent pacemaker. Uh,
1: that's, a, that's a great summary, uh, Chad. Um, and uh, I think it's a good segue into the next question that I was going to ask you, uh, which was... How would you then manage? How do you manage in your daily practice patients with nuanced left bundle branch block uh, following a transcatheter aortic valve replacement, or for example, um, a patient with a baseline right bundle branch block who then has part, you know, temporary uh, complete AV block, uh, complete atrioventricular block during the procedure, uh, and has then recovered? Um, Just go over the different elements um, of managing, uh, you know, such cases. Um, what's the uh, duration of monitoring? Uh, how long do you keep the temporary pacemaker in? Um, and w- what are the thresholds uh, to get an electrophysiologist on board, um, in order to help you decipher, you know, whether this patient needs, uh, additional monitoring or is safe for discharge, uh, without a permanent pacemaker. I, I, cause I think that's a gray zone, uh, and still is evolving. And, you know, for the listeners, um, uh, Dr. Kleiger and colleagues have put together uh, uh, an incredible algorithm um, in uh, in, the, in their manuscript, uh, Figure Two. Uh, so I would recommend actually taking a a picture of this algorithm or printing this algorithm and and pasting it uh, in the cardiac catheterization laboratory or in the cardiac intensive care unit because uh, I think it's very applicable. It's very practical, uh, and we have the we have the luxury from uh, hearing. Uh, directly from Dr. Kleiker. So uh, Chad, why why don't you talk to us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, Ankur, it's a a great question. I I think, you know, to start off, you know, how we practice uh, in this structural heart space is really, truly multidisciplinary. You know, we work closely with our surgeons or uh, our imagers, but I think very true for this in particular, we really have to work closely with our electrophysic, EP or electrophysiological colleagues. So I think it's with their help, we're going to help Come up with safe algorithms, algorithms uh, to to best manage these patients. Um, just just to start off, looking at the algorithm we have in the past divided uh, between a balloon expandable and self-expandable valves. As we try to simplify algorithms, we're trying to sort of uh, merge them with data that we've we've done at our own local institution. But I think this gives some basic uh, management pathway that we've utilized. To help at least guide us, because I think in the past uh, we really struggled uh, in this in this space for procedural efficiency and hospital efficiency to really try to mobilize our patients and get and make sure that they're safe uh, upon this uh, approach of trying to get them at, out of the hospital with an early discharge. So this uh, the concept of minimalist taver and really looking to get patients out of the hospital at a reasonable time time frame really forced us to come up with an algorithm to help really hone in. How we can get patients out safely uh, w- without any issues. Uh, looking at the algor- algorithm uh, in in the publication, uh, if we we do implant the TAVR uh, and there's no new bundle branch block, no new first degree AV block, uh, the the device the TVP is taken out at the end of the case. And I think that's uh, that's true for most centers. I think now we're really getting these. Uh, transvenous pacemakers out early, uh, intra-procedurally, and they go to the floor with close monitoring, and all these patients do very well with these new generation devices. Uh, patients who, who do develop a new bundle branch block, new first-degree AV block, are the ones that we really hone in on, on monitoring, in which case we do leave the pacemakers in, um, and uh, we'll monitor these patients, and depending upon what the EKG shows and what the monitoring shows will then uh, dictate uh, uh, what, what, how, how we take our next steps uh, for balloon expandable valves? Uh, if the QRS complex and there's good data to show with QRS uh, complex greater than 160, uh, there is a high risk of uh, subsequent uh, uh, high AB degree, high degree AV block. Uh, we uh, wind up uh, putting pacemakers uh, in these patients. Uh, in some cases, we do do an EP study if there is a borderline, but uh, we do take advantage, and many of these patients will receive basement, uh, underlying we'll, we'll get pacemakers. Um, we divided it in the algorithm as well to normal QRS at baseline, left bundle, and a right bundle branch block. Our right bundle branch block population, if they have no change uh, in their conduction system, meaning that the QRS is unchanged, they still remain to have the right bundle, uh, many of these patients will leave with an event monitor for a two-week period, and then we'll follow up in our office, and we'll get an implantable loop recorder subsequently uh, to uh, look long-term for any uh, any risk of <coughs> excuse me of um, of uh, a higher degree of heart block. It's important to note, and we take advantage of event monitoring because these uh, our event monitors are real-time monitoring that within, uh, within 10 minutes of an event, our uh, center is notified, our electrophysiologist is notified uh, of, um, of any degree heart block, and we quickly reach out to the patient. So I think the, the decision to use event monitoring over uh, implantable is really has been focused on real-time monitoring and making sure that when we do uh, discharge these patients that there are any events, We pick them up very early, sometimes even before patients become symptomatic, get them back to our institution to try to obviate the need for events. Uh, The choice for two weeks, you'll see in the data, we in the publication, uh, we showed uh, some some of our references uh, show a risk of if you block out the eight days, um, but the two-week time frame, uh, I think, gives a a reasonable amount of time uh, from the published data that we can pick up uh, the highest risk patient population. Uh, other things, if you look at, uh, this, the algorithm for our self-expandable valves, um, you know, even though we, we have treated them differently in the past, now we're trying to come up with a more unified algorithm to treat, uh, all valves, uh, QRS that is, that is, uh, greater than 120, uh, with the, with the self-expandable valve, we would consider for an EP study, uh, and depending on what the EP study showed, looking for a, uh, H to V interval that was greater than 65 milliseconds would push us uh, to do uh, an implant uh, apparent permanent pacemaker. Uh, in addition, this algorithm, just like uh, in the other algorithm, uh, we do use very heavily uh, real-time monitoring, event monitoring. That if patients have any conduction issue change, uh, and either have an EP study or do not, um, that they're sent home with two-week event monitoring uh, for close follow-up for patients.
1: That's uh, excellent. I think I would just summarize, uh, you know, because I, I, I um, gathered two really important uh, points here, which I think um, may be, um, I think, uh, ignored uh, by, by some practitioners. And that is, uh, you know, the, the practice of putting an event monitor in for a couple of weeks in a patient with a baseline right bundle branch block, because it's been shown uh, to be an independent risk for developing comp- complete heart block uh in patients with transcatheteric valve replacement I, I think is a, is an excellent uh, practice um and, and then uh, i think you mentioned with self expanding valves um and um wide qrs complexes if if they persist uh doing an ep study in an hv interval of more more than 65 uh is another excellent uh, practice point um, and then you know my last question um, Uh, to you, Chad, is um, with um, patients at low risk going into uh, trial um, for this technology, uh, transcatheteric valve replacement, Uh, and I think the data um, will have been presented by the time we release this this podcast, Uh, where do you see um, conduction abnormalities playing a role uh, if we start offering uh, this technology, the transcatheter technology to patients who are uh, otherwise healthy. I mean, that's why they're at low risk for surgical urtic valve replacement. Um, h- how do you see uh, the, the field um, sort of play itself out uh, for the low risk patients? Because, you know, I don't think any one of us would want our patients who are otherwise at low risk to land up with uh, a permanent pacemaker.
2: True. So, you know, I think a couple things. I think the patient population for low risk uh, may be slightly different than what we've seen in the populations for uh, inoperable higher intermediate risk, where uh, calcium burden may be slightly different, uh, even though it is degenerative calcific disease. Um, uh, Some of the features that we may take true for those uh, prior studies may not hold true in in this patient population, but that's still yet... uh, uh, we need to we need to understand uh, a little bit better. Uh, I think we're we're learning more about imaging, so we're understanding patient anatomy. We're learning about how to measure the septums uh, from a technology standpoint. There have been changes in technology, and how we we're able to also implement this technology in the lab. As you and I know, you know we're we're being much uh, better about implanting at a higher uh, higher implantation depth, whether it's for uh, core valve uh, being you know in the in the way above six millimeters, uh, you know, shooting for zero to three millimeters uh, in terms of implantation depth for for the sapien valve where, you know, we were shooting 80-20 before and now, you know, new, with the new potential ultra, now who will know what the outer skirt will do uh, in terms of uh, pacemaker rates uh, with this new device, but, you know, they're they're implanting at 90-10. So I think, you know, a couple, the patient population may be slightly different, I think, you know, we're smarter in terms of how we implant uh, technology will will evolve. But I think uh, the biggest thing is, you know, how do we understand moving forward the mechanism um, of what we see in these patients? How are we able to figure this out? But who are the true high-risk patients that have conduction abnormalities? How are we best able to sort of decipher who these patients are and what are the best ways to to protect them? But I think, you know, the the simplest thing to do is to put a pacemaker in. Uh, even though uh, right now uh, our, we don't have data to support that putting in a pacemaker out to two years has any effect on mortality or outcomes. Uh, but that being said, we, we are dealing with now a low-risk uh, patient population. That if this becomes a, uh, these two trials become positive, uh, and if we do put in uh, pacemakers, uh, how will this affect these patients long-term? um, it is definitely going to be, um, definitely going to be an issue. So I think, you know, we, we have to grow in this space. This is definitely a, uh, a space where, uh, industry is, is looking very heavily on and as, uh, physicians and planters, uh, we have to critically think about this space, uh, as we, as we move forward. Uh,
1: great. Uh, thanks again, uh, Chad, for, um, your excellent, uh, contribution to U.S. Cardiology Review and for, uh, the podcast interview, uh, you've summarized um, very well for our listeners, um, you know, how we should manage uh, patients with conduction abnormalities uh, in the peri-taver period. Um, and uh, I think um, this will help uh, clinicians uh, out in the trenches uh, who are taking care of these patients, uh, you know, better manage uh, conduction abnormalities following transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Uh, Thank you once again for uh, joining me and uh, our team at US Cardiology Review for this podcast interview.
2: Thank you, Encore, and thank you, your listeners, for having me. Appreciate it.
0: That was Jack Kleiger giving us all the practical tips to manage conduction abnormalities in the peritabular period. As I alluded to in the interview with him, the data on low risk patients is literally hot off the press and has created all the buzz at the American College of Cardiology annual scientific sessions 2019 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Predicting and managing conduction abnormalities following TAVR will be crucial as it is estimated that an additional 20,000 patients will be added to the treatment pool of an existing 60,000 patients following the publication of the two landmark trials in low-risk aortic stenosis patients. I hope you enjoyed listening to our first podcast. I will be back with the second episode of Parallax, this time with a teacher, a colleague, and a dear friend from my alma mater, Minneapolis Heart Institute, Santiago Garcia. Santiago will teach us more about the value and the utility of high sensitivity troponin assays in 2019. Please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Parallax on different podcast platforms including Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes, among others. Share with colleagues and friends on social media and do give us your feedback. Your support means a lot to us. Thank you so much for listening.